Hello, everyone. Today, I'm here with Larry Johnson, the chief blogger at Sonar 21 and former analyst at the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency and the State Department's Office of Counterterrorism. He's quite possibly one of the sharpest contrarian voices in geopolitical affairs. How's your day going, Larry? So far, so good. Nobody's shooting at me. (laughs) (laughs) It's always a good sign. So could you tell my audience about your career and the current work you do? I've had a a varied career. Some would say I couldn't hold a job. I spent four years with the Central Intelligence Agency. I worked on both the Directorate of Operations and then the Directorate of Intelligence for the most part. Uh, I was the Honduran analyst during the Contra Wars in Central America. I left the CIA in 1989, moved to the State Department's Office of Counterterrorism. I was there for four years, worked on issues such as the investigation of the bombing of Pan Am 103. And then uh, they started downsizing the counterterrorism office. The only way I'd made the move from CIA down to state was as a contractor. So I became a full-time contractor on my own and uh, did business as uh, both scripting exercises for U.S. military special operations and uh, did uh, financial investigations around the world, money laundering cases. So I spent a lot of time in Central South America, Colombia, Argentina, and uh, it gave me insight into not just the workings of the CIA as an analyst, but CIA in terms of operations, U.S. military, all of their special operations capabilities, the FBI. Uh, So I've I've been fortunate to have a really broad-based understanding of how the U.S. government works. And uh, I think that's helped me bring some fresh analysis to issues. Well, great stuff to hear. And I I do believe that your analysis is on point and does expose many of like the harsh realities of like the so-called deep state and broader national security state that works against the national interests of the U.S., in my view. Now, the topic of the day is obviously Russia and Based on your assessment of the situation in Ukraine, what is your impression of the latest military developments unfolding in eastern Ukraine? Russia is just steadily grinding down the Ukrainian military and in the process actually destroying NATO or destroying NATO's military capabilities. When this war started, number one, it was provoked by the United States, by the United Kingdom. They were deliberately inciting Ukraine with the prospect of becoming a member of NATO after repeated warnings by the Russians that that was just a red line that was unacceptable. Uh, The West was actually massing, helping Ukraine mass troops last year prior to the start of the Russian what the Russians call the special military operation. Everyone else calls it an invasion. But before the Russians launched that operation, they were seeing uh, the Ukrainian army building up in the Donbass, in the eastern area of Ukraine. And uh, because it had been somewhat of a stalemate for eight years, uh, that civil war in Ukraine. And the Russians moved preemptively to stop it. The United States and the United Kingdom 
believed genuinely that they could put economic pressure by isolating Russia, that it would cause not only a collapse of Putin's government, but would lead to a breakup of, of the Russian government itself. And in the process, uh, it would give the West control over the vast natural resources that uh, are part of Russia. Uh, well, that, that failed. And what, what has happened, what they didn't, you know, there's been a lot of uh, commentary in the West, uh, misguided and mistaken in my view, claiming that the Russians are militarily inept and competent. And it's, it's just been, it's, it's been the exact opposite. They declared at the outset their goal is to demilitarize Ukraine, but they're going to do so in a way that they're not going to put Russian troops in immediate jeopardy of, of suffering high casualties. So they've opted for a war of attrition using artillery, missiles, air-launched missiles, as well as uh, sea-based and ground-launched uh, missiles, and uh, have been just destroying not only the, the, the manpower of the Ukrainian military, but the tanks, the vehicles, the armored vehicles, the ammunition stores. And it's, uh, the Ukraine is now in a, in a position that it is utterly, totally dependent upon aid that's coming from the United States, from the United Kingdom. And yet what, we, what the Russians have discovered, I think much to their surprise, I know it, it's really surprised me, is that despite having a vast military industrial complex in the West, it's, it's pretty weak. It's not capable of producing in mass quantities artillery shells, as an example, the, uh, the uh, 155 millimeter shells that accompany the M777. Uh, howitzer. Right now, my understanding is it takes the U.S. supplier a month to create the number of shells that the Ukrainians are firing in one week. So just do the math on that. It, it's unsustainable. So what we're exposing is that the lie that the United States has the best military in the world, the greatest military, it, no, it has the most expensive military in the world. And th that has been exposed in, in this conflict in the Ukraine. Uh, just one sort of fun fact. The U.S. defense budget, I think, is now approaching close to $850 billion. If you take the defense budgets of China, Russia, the United Kingdom, Germany, and France combined, take all of those they are half of what the U.S. defense budget is. In other words, the United States is spending twice as much money as all those other countries combined. Uh, and, and what do we get for it? We get, you know, extremely overpriced airplanes that don't work, like the F-35. You get $13 billion aircraft carriers that are now completely vulnerable to hypersonic missiles. So the progress of this war in Ukraine is creating a situation where Russia is not only going to defeat Ukraine militarily, it's going to defeat NATO. And that's something I think no one expected at the outset. In a similar vein, in terms of casualties, I've seen some number of oh, oh, this wide ballpark of numbers being floated out there where Ukraine is like taking well, like north of like 
a hundred thousand like KIA, and like yeah. Russia's gotten like I believe like twenty like the thirty thousand KIAs. What numbers have you seen that are credible in terms of like the total body count that has been incurred throughout this conflict? Yeah, I think the the Ukrainian numbers for for dead are probably in excess of one hundred and fifty thousand, uh, approaching two hundred thousand. The Russians are probably in that twenty to thirty thousand range. One of the problems we've had, uh, and I, I know this from insiders that are still involved with uh, intelligence work, that the United States intelligence community has been relying exclusively on information that the Ukrainians are giving us. So the Ukrainian military, Ukrainian general staff, uh, political leadership, they tell us, oh, yeah, we're, we've killed 100,000 Russians or 200,000, or they're all dead. Well, we're not doing any kind of independent verification. But it, it is pretty easy these days to tell if there are a, a lot of casualties or not. Russia is not a totalitarian state. They don't have totalitarian control over social media. And even though Ukraine and Ukrainian authorities are trying to shut down social media in Ukraine, they can't stop it either. So when you just go through and look at the social media, what you see is enormous casualties, uh, graveyards filled with Ukrainian flags. And you're not seeing anything comparable to that in Russia. And I, I guarantee you there's if the Russians were suffering the kind of casualties that the Ukrainians are, the, the Russian people would be talking about it. It would create a potential political problem for Putin. But that's just simply not the case. Yeah, that's what I figured. And it's also kind of ironic, too, where there's this two-minute hate uh, campaign against Russia for being like supposedly authoritarian and totalitarian. But it's like strikes me as very – there's like a lot of projection because not only – due to how the collective West has also grown more authoritarian, especially on like social media censorship, among other issues, but also their poster child in Ukraine is actually like a corrupt backwater that has taken an increasingly totalitarian turn on a host of political issues, whether it comes to like shutting down like opposition media and all that. No, you're absolutely right. The When you compare, it's been Ukraine, not Russia, that's been shutting down opposition political parties. It's been Ukraine, not Russia, that's persecuting uh, the church, the, the Orthodox Church in, in Ukraine. It's been Ukraine, not Russia, that's shutting down opposition media, closing down uh, opposition political parties. So across the board, and then it's ironic in places like the United Kingdom, that once used to be a place of freedom, you're having people arrested for the simple act of standing outside of, say, an abortion center praying. And they're not praying out loud, they're praying silently. And yet that becomes a thought crime in the UK. Well, <laughs> you're not seeing anything like that in Russia. In fact, I am more and more convinced that part of the anger and fury directed at Russia is because of its, its really traditional views about uh, men and women, marriage, and its, it's uh, alliance with the Eastern Orthodox Christian theology. In other words, it's, it's an anti-homosexual uh, agenda uh, in Russia. They don't em embrace the whole Rainbow Coalition, LGBTQ uh, business. And that 
becomes, I think, one of the rallying points in the West that they see this is totally unacceptable. Because, you know, I don't know, I don't know how old you are, but I, you sound like you're not old enough to remember the Cold War, which is fine. You'd have to be about 50 years old to have anything of approaching memories of what it was like when the Soviet Union and the United States were locked in this Cold War. Throughout the entire period of the Cold War, the Bay of Pigs, Cuban Missile Crisis, the Vietnam War, even though the United States and, and Russia engaged in proxy wars against each other, at no time did we demonize the Russian people, Russian culture, and in fact, just the opposite. We embraced some of it. We talked to, but we were talking to each other. The U.S. presidents would talk to the the Russian leaders. Uh, the you know Yuri Andropov and Leonid Brezhnev, they they were not exactly what you'd call charmers, and yet the United States had dialogue with them. We we treat Russia now like it's a carrier of the bubonic plague, and must be shunned at all costs. It's just it's insane, and and, and so it's this is this is going to actually end badly, I think, for the United States. Uh, we've bet on the fact that we could defeat Russia. And the miscalculation is Russia is entirely self-sufficient when it comes to natural resources. It is the richest country in the world in terms of natural resources. It has everything it needs to produce, everything from food to electronics to rockets to planes, the United States doesn't. And on top of that, Russia actually has an industrial base for producing things, and it has an educated population. Uh, the educa- its educated population exceeds what the United States fields. So we're in a situation where the United States has actually lost this war and doesn't realize it. Now, given how Russia is making solid gains in the east of Ukraine, do you believe the West is starting to recognize that Ukraine, starting to recognize that the the whole concept of Ukraine retaking previously lost territory is a futile endeavor, or will they continue to pour economic and military aid into Ukraine? Uh, I think they're going to continue to pour the economic and military aid in. The notion that Ukraine could do anything to, quote, recapture Crimea is just, it's delusional. It's, it's not only crazy. With what? How are they going to do that? You've not had a single instance in this last year where the Ukrainian military has attacked an entrenched, defended Russian position and defeated the Russians. Not once. The much touted offensive from August and September when the the Russians withdrew from the Kharkov uh, region. They did so because, the, the one, the Russians did not have a large troop presence there. There was two, they used a, a sort of a territorial defense uh, police um, presence. They did not actually have uh, armored units. So they withdrew rather than try to fight the Ukrainians. 
uh, because they didn't want to incur the, the losses. They could withdraw from that area and not uh, weaken their strategic position in Ukraine. But then the same happened in Kherson. They were positioned at, if you've ever been to New Orleans, it's like uh, you're on one side of the city and the, you recognize that if the water comes up, you can't cross that river to get to the other side to safety. And the Russian supply line comes from the east, so they were... You know, they, they pulled out a curse on. Okay, so the, those are the, you know, the two examples of, quote, successes of Ukrainian of offensive operations. They have not done what Russia is doing right now and has done. Remember when Russia captured Mariupol, uh, surrounded and destroyed the Azov Battalion, the Nazi Azov Battalion. And now they're doing the same to Ukrainian forces and Solidar and Bakhmut. And Saversk, it's just they're rolling it up. So at no point has Ukraine demonstrated that it has uh, the combined arms. And combined arms means you can move uh, infantry and armored vehicles and tanks in formation, and they can be backed up with artillery and as well as with fixed wing and rotary wing aircraft operating above the to bring a full force for military power on an objective. Ukraine doesn't have that. They don't have fixed-wing and rotary-wing aircraft that can go up and real pose a threat uh, to the Russians. Their uh, tank resources are depleted. Same with artillery. They, they keep losing pieces every day and armored vehicles. So how would they launch such an offensive? I. <laughs> it's just... The people that suggest this are, they're just displaying their abject ignorance about military matters. Oh, 100% delusional. Uh, those type of people are living on a different planet. And in a sane society, their opinions would be completely discarded and they would very likely be reduced to pauper status, honestly, because they are intellectual peasants at the end of the day. Talking nonsense. And then the this notion, oh, we'll, we'll put tanks in Ukraine. They don't understand the basics of what it takes to train a crew to operate a tank first, and then on top of that, the training required to uh, integrate multiple tanks into an effective unit so that they know how to operate together. You don't do that in a, you know, this is not learning how to drive a, a Honda. This, is, this in, entails months. And uh, the Ukrainians don't have months. They're running out of uh, essential material, and the Russians are continuing to advance militarily. Indeed. Now, another point that has um, intrigued me is how you mentioned that like, the Donbass is turning into a meat grinder for you, the Ukrainian military as its units are just being decimated like from left to right. To the point where they won't be able to mount much of a, like offensive against Russia. Heck, they, they very likely won't even be able to defend much either. So there is growing speculation that now Russia is on the verge of launching an offensive. When do you believe that Russia is going to kick off this offensive? And where do you see it being directed to? Oh, I think I think the offensive has already begun. You know, remember it was. Think back to World War II 
and, and the invasion of Normandy on D-Day, when that was unfolding, you know, we look at it now with the benefit of hindsight and say, oh, yeah, that's when the invasion started. But the Germans, and particularly Hitler, they did not see that as the, as the actual invasion because they anticipated and believed that the, the real blow would come at Pas de Calais, across the, you know, north of Normandy, and be led by General Patton. So a lot of times when these offensives are underway, uh, the media doesn't always capture it. So uh, what I'm looking at is the intensity of the fire, the fact that the Russians are operating on a broad front over, you know, it's over three, 400 miles. It's not, not just a 10-mile confined area. They're moving from the south, from Zaporizhia, um, moving north. Uh, they're moving west uh, in the Donbass, taking out uh, key, key sites. The, the, really, there's a the, the second defensive line, which extends from Severus down through Bakhmut. That's in the process of being destroyed, which means uh, after that, the Ukrainians only have one defensive line left over in Slavyansk and uh, Kramatorsk. So the Russians are steadily moving in this grinding affair. Uh, and, and at the same time, they they deployed forces to Belarus. Uh, I'm not sure if they actually intend to use those forces, if they're there as a reserve in the event NATO tries to intervene by putting its own forces into Ukraine, or if it's just there as a diversion. But in any event, I, I don't think you're going to see some big startup like we did on February 24th, where you went from no military action to the start of an actual invasion. The military invasion or the, the offensive by Russia is it's underway. And so it will, it will expand, likely. But uh, what it's highlighting is that uh, the Ukrainians are hard. They can't stop it. They have not, they've failed to stop Russia uh, at Solidar. They failed to stop them in Bakhmut. They're not going to stop them in Marienka. So the uh, the the list of targets that uh, at at no point in this uh, recent uh, up uptick in in military activity has Ukraine thwarted the Russians. When the smoke clears from the Russo-Ukrainian conflict, how do you see? things unfolding in Ukraine in terms of its territorial integrity? Will it be a coherent nation or will it undergo a full-blown partition? Ukraine as a nation is done. The Russians have effectively castrated it. The key industrial and agricultural resources of Ukraine uh, you know, recognize Ukraine in terms of natural resources probably prior to the start of this conflict well, would be ranked in the top five in the world. You know, you'd have Russia, China, the Ukraine, the United States in terms of just uh, natural resources. But yet Ukraine was the poorest country in Europe. Now, the reason it was the poorest country in Europe is because of the level of corruption that was aided and abetted by the likes of the United States. You know, when you get Hunter Biden and uh, former CIA officer Kofor Black sitting on the board of Burisma, they're not there because these guys are geniuses when it comes to uh, natural gas production and distribution. So you've had 
the United States basically rape, helped participate in the rape of Ukraine, and the, and it's been impoverished. So as when this war is over, when when they the Russians will receive the unconditional surrender, I believe, of the Ukrainians, the portion of Ukraine that will remain will not have access to the Black Sea, because I believe that the Russians are not going to stop until they have Odessa firmly under their control. So it will be sort of like Albania, I guess, would be the best parallel. And Ukraine's going to wind up as something of a pariah. They've already hemorrhaged uh, probably 10 million people. Uh, they started with, I think, a population of 41 million. 10 million are already refugees outside the country. Uh, that number is going to grow. So from a population loss, from uh, the loss of an industrial base, I, I really don't see how Ukraine remains uh, a viable nation. Uh, they're going to be a, really a backwater. And the, 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 you know, the, real, the real problem that has afflicted them is the corruption. It is it, it, it really is a, it's, it's a nuclear power when it comes to corruption. All right. Now, let's shift our gaze to China, which I've long argued is the U.S. national security state's primary target, if you will. What do you make of this recent spy balloon incident that's been all over the news? I think it was an incident the United States created in order to give Joe Biden something to talk about at the State of the Union, that he's a tough guy able to take on the Chinese. It, it makes no sense. Number one, NORAD, who has the job of identifying inbound uh, aerial uh, you know, objects that are flying in airspace, either it failed to identify that balloon, which I don't believe, or it identified it didn't consider it a threat, and they didn't do anything until some folks around Biden caught wind of it and decided to try to make it an issue. The notion that we're going to get uh, all bent out of shape over a balloon because it can, it can gather communications data, and it can do this, and it can do that. For God's sake, we've got Chinese satellites that are regularly overflying the United States and gathering uh, intelligence. We've got Chinese collection stations in Mexico that are gathering intelligence. So what if they're gathering intelligence? I mean, let's think this through. The reason the Chinese gathered that intelligence is to find out whether or not the United States is going to attack them. And people say, oh, the United States isn't going to attack them. Oh, really? So let's look at history. In the last 50 years, how many countries has China invaded militarily, where they've sent their forces to take control of a duly elected or a duly constituted government? The answer is, I think, two. They went into Vietnam and they uh, went into Tibet. How about the United States? How many have we done? Well, it's a long list. Iraq twice, Panama, uh, Grenada, uh, Afghanistan, Syria, you, you know, go down the list. If you're a Chinese military planner or intelligence officer, you've got to look at the United States as the, actually the United States, the one that poses a threat of trying to use its military force against a country. Uh, we have a, a long, sordid track record of overthrowing other governments. So 
This entire this was just theater, theater stage to inspire fear in America. I wish someone. Could, I've been asking people repeatedly, please tell me the distance above the Earth at which we suddenly no longer care if we're being overflown by a foreign object that belongs to another country. You see, if it's 80 miles above the Earth and in orbit, then we don't care. But if it's six miles up, oh my God, that's a, we can't have that, or 12 miles, you know. So it's just, it's very arbitrary on our part, and it's silly. But the real thing that is, I guess, concerns me is we've got people in the United States that genuinely believe we can confront the Chinese militarily and win. We can't. We do not have the military capability to defeat the Chinese uh, unless we use nuclear weapons. We can only, only if we start a nuclear war do we have any hope of defeating the Chinese. We can't do anything with our aircraft carrier task force because if the the aircraft carriers get within a thousand miles of China, they'll blow our aircraft carriers out of the water because the Chinese have hypersonic missiles and we have no defense against hypersonic missiles. Our fixed-wing aircraft, you know, they might get off some bombing runs in China, but they'll be shot down in the process. And so we'll, we'll lose a significant portion of our Air Force. And the, the, we're not like World War II, where we were turning out thousands of planes a month. It takes years to produce one of these, uh, you know, overpriced Lamborghinis with wings. So I sit back and listen to people the bellicosity and belligerence on our part and wonder exactly what, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? Yeah, actually, that's a really good point. You mentioned about the just like the infeasibility of like the U.S. trying to confront China because with the U.S. pilfering so much of its military stockpiles in arming Ukraine, the, this notion of containing China is delusional at best. Do you still think that the ruling classes of the West will try to follow through with this? Because I get the impression that when you look at the West, there's just so many horrible social issues taking place like domestically that there's people here delusional enough to think that they can create a rally around the flag effect by trying to paint China as like the next big bad to confront? Well, yeah, this is, if you've ever been to Hollywood and tried to pitch uh, an idea to make a movie or a TV show, the key to the pitch is you got to have a villain. Who's the villain? Well, uh, if we don't have a consistent villain in terms of a foreign enemy or multiple adversaries, we find it is it's real hard to continue to justify $850 billion into a defense industry that is really dysfunctional. So this, the effort to portray China as our ultimate enemy, it's just following a natural course because terrorism is no longer useful as, as an excuse to justify $850 billion. We, that, we fell, uh, fell into that starting in 2000 uh, because the communist threat had disappeared. And so we had to find something. And Russia at the time... Uh, was not perceived as militarily uh, competent to justify presenting them as the big enemy. And 
the, the economic ties with China at the time uh, were seen as more important. So we didn't want to r- run the risk of jeopardizing those. So, you know, it became terrorism. Well, now, now we're back to the old, it's Russia and China. And we've got we've to build up our military. We've got to spend that money. And, but the money's being spent without any kind of strategic picture or vision of uh, national defense. Uh, because the, the money's being spent on, on what are called tools for expeditionary warfare, tools that, uh, for putting troops on planes and ships and sending them overseas to fight instead of uh, shoring up our own borders. And as you correctly note, all of this is being done at a time that the U.S. society, the U.S. culture is being hollowed out. Uh, the proliferation of the transgender agenda and the homosexual agenda with the LGBTQ becoming, you know, that you almost have to genuflect before that. You can't criticize it. The, ex- the extensive use of illegal narcotics and the rising death toll among Americans from the overdoses, particularly of fentanyl. You know, we're losing in every single year almost twice the number of people that died in the Vietnam War on the American side. You know, we lost 58,000 in the Vietnam War, and that encompassed about 20 years. Whereas, and, and let's say seven years of real intense fighting. But uh, we're, we're losing over 100,000 every year from fentanyl. And nobody, no big deal. Go to the inner cities at the level of violence that is taking place primarily in black and brown neighborhoods and against, and it's black on black or Latino on black violence. It's not white on white or, you know, there's not this white supremacy that's causing this. And yet the mythology is being produced that all the problems in the United States uh, proceed from a legacy of white supremacy. Uh, just, just the very fact that we talk about white, I'm not white, I'm, I'm a beige color. So white is not even a, a correct intellectual concept. George Carlin always said, said it best. Uh, he said people, we talk about people of color, he says it's, it's just the same as calling them colored people. Well, you wouldn't call them colored people, but you can call them people of color, it's the same thing. It just reflects growing ignorance in this country, that you've got a nation that's largely uneducated. And we're doing this to minority communities, that when you look at the average reading ability in in the inner cities, among inner city students, uh, it's declined dramatically. So I I don't see how the United States really recovers from this because we've spent so much time lying to ourselves about the real problems that we keep projecting it onto other countries and look for foreign enemies. The enemies within, we're, we're our own worst enemy. And uh, our failure to, to deal with this is, I think it's, it's going to destroy us. One thing I've noticed, like historically speaking, is that declining empires tend to be very dangerous um, when it comes to like, foreign affairs and do you see the U.S. trying to pull off like one last geopolitical hurrah, if you will, against like a more vulnerable target such as like Cuba, Iran or Venezuela? I, I wrote a piece the other day where I used the image of the uh, big bad wolf. You know, you, you call the, 
story, the children's story of the three little pigs and the big bad wolf, uh, the United States has been very much like that big bad wolf. We've been we've been blowing down houses of straw. We've been blowing down houses of wood. Uh, but now we're coming up against the brick house. And the brick house is China. The brick house is Russia. And all of our huffing and puffing is for naught. We can't blow them down. The only thing we can try to do is use nuclear weapons. And that's a suicide pact. Well, we, we labor under uh, really the false assumption that we are uh, on equal footing with the Russians when it comes to the possible use of nuclear weapons. Number one, George W. Bush walked away from the anti-ballistic missile treaty uh, in 2001. And the United States, instead of spending resources on developing anti-ballistic missile defense systems, you know, spent wasted money on contractors fighting the so-called war on terror. The Russians did did the exact opposite. They have developed robust anti-ballistic missile defense systems. They have now deployed uh, the the S-400, the S-500, and uh, my understanding is uh, there's another one called the S-550, which can actually handle uh, missiles that are sent from outer space. Uh, So uh, they're doing that. Uh, the Russians are working nationwide right now on refurbishing bomb shelters. They have bomb shelters designed to protect and sustain their populations. So Russia is actually preparing for the possibility of having to fight a nuclear war. The United States is not. You know, frankly, this, this society would be immediately disabled if you take out the Internet, if you take out some major transportation grids, you know, shut down air traffic, shut down fuel, the cities would starve and they would, they would turn into a dystopian hellholes. So I think you're, you're correct that instead of recognizing it's our limitations and trying to focus on fixing our own problems, we're, we continue to look uh, outside and indulge in, in military adventures that, frankly, are going to kill us as a nation. So I, that's, I mean, I'm, you know, I wish it was otherwise, but I, I don't see how we avoid this. You know, we're like that friend, you, you know, you've had a friend who's a junkie, and you keep trying to tell them that they got to stop, they got to stop using the heroin, they're going to kill themselves, and they, you know, are, are, are an alcoholic. And what they do is they end up drinking themselves to death or overdosing. That's what the United States has become. We're addicted, but the, 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 this, we're addicted as an imperial power. And we've been accustomed to having our way, throwing our weight around. And China and Russia are now saying, no, we're, we're not going to subject ourselves to you anymore. And in fact, we're not even going to talk to you. That, that was one of the curious things about this balloon incident uh, with China, uh, you would think once that balloon crossed into U.S. territory that the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, would pick up the phone, call his Chinese counterpart and say, basically, what the hell's going on? What is this balloon doing? Is this, uh, is, is it that, did you lose control of it? Or is it uh, deliberate on your part? And he didn't do that because it would have given it a chance to potentially defuse it. 
we shoot it down. And it's only after that we after we shoot it down that Austin tries to contact the Chinese. Chinese tell him to go pound sand. So the Chinese they've listened to that four-star general with uh, the military airlift command, who has said we're, that the United States is going to be at war with China within a year, year and a half. Chinese take that seriously. They're not ignoring. They, they don't think we're just you know. Uh, you know, bullshit. They believe it. And they're going to react accordingly. And I, I, for the life of me, I don't understand why Americans don't appreciate that when we say stupid stuff like that, it's going to come back to haunt us. Russia is in the same position. They now recognize that the United States is not a reliable, trustworthy partner in any kind of negotiations or dialogue. So they're walking away from, you know, the United States, on our part, unilaterally abrogated the anti-ballistic missile treaty in 2001. Then Trump walked away from their intermediate nuclear uh, weapons treaty, the INF, uh, in 2018, I believe. That left new start, and the Chinese, uh, the Russians, told us, "Screw you! We're not even. We're not going to go along with that," which allowed us in the past to have the right to go inspect facilities in Russia. Russia's now said, nah, not going to happen. Uh, we're going our own way. So we've ruptured really some bridges of dialogue, and it's a, it's a very dangerous time. Oh, yes, it absolutely is dangerous. And I have very little confidence that there is much leadership in D.C. to handle this because I've always been of the impression that there's an interventionist uniparty in control of foreign affairs in um, D.C. And in your view, do you see any hope for the U.S. moving towards a more realist slash non-interventionist foreign policy in the near future? I do not. It's going to what it's going to take is going to be a combination of military defeat and economic collapse that will awaken us from this nightmare of delusion that we are possessed with. And it, it will be out of, out of that defeat that we'll have the possibility of some redemption. Uh, I don't foresee you know, Russia or China getting on ships and sailing over here wanting to invade us because it's just there are too many people with guns that will fight back and it would be too, too difficult. But... The United States, the, our country right now, I see really we've got some, we've got the potential. If we if we get into a war with China, uh, we could lose Hawaii. So the Hawaiian Islands would come under Chinese control. Uh, possibly Alaska as well could come under Chinese or Russian control. So we're playing with fire, and we have not contemplated what some of the implications are that. The, the reach of American power is, uh, is now reached. We, we've come up against some technological limits. Remember, there was a time when the United States was a leader in, 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 the, in terms of uh, getting to outer space and space operations. And even though the Russians were the first to put to orbit the planet with a satellite and the first to get a man in the, into space, uh, the United States caught up quickly. And then that capability disappeared. Our spacecraft would blow up and disintegrate upon re-entry. We had to start relying upon the Russians starting, I believe, in 2004 to actually carry our astronauts on, on their spacecraft 
to, to get up to the International Space Station. <laughs> so the era of U.S. supremacy and technology is past. And just look at the uh, right now and in colleges, I believe 7% of all college students are in engineering programs in the United States. In Russia, that number is 25%. And when you take that 7% in the United States, I think you'll find that probably 40 to 50% of them are foreign students from other countries. So in terms of actual, the era of the Thomas Edison's and Eli Whitney's, you know, these smart local inventors and technological wizardry, uh, Thomas Edison, that's gone. That's gone. And the, yeah, there are some rare exceptions, but we've, we're now so, so focused on the woke culture and being politically correct that we've uh, really sacrificed uh, talent in, in the quest. I, I mean, Lloyd Austin, as Secretary of Defense, is, is a case in point. The only reason he's in that job is because he's considered, quote, black. He was an untalented, incompetent officer throughout his career. He was the last person. He was no Colin Powell. Colin Powell, at least, you know, had some ability. And instead of selecting people according to their ability and performance, they end up downgrading it where they're selecting people according to the color of their skin. And yet, if we were all blind, had no vision, skin color would actually have no influence whatsoever. We would be down to having to evaluate people in terms of their ability to communicate and what they could do. And, you know, until the United States gets back to that kind of standard, which I, I frankly, I don't see how we get there. Uh, Because this myth that everything in the United States is is corrupted because of racism is just has taken such a fierce hold of corporate media that uh, it's made it anybody that tries to push back against it is silenced. As many people would say about your analysis, Larry, it's quite black pilling, but it is a sober reality of our times. And I think that most people must come to grips with it if we want to move forward and find like a viable solution out of this. Yes, uh, I think this is a good place, Larry, to put a, a bookmark in the conversation, but Again, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Where can my audience keep up with your latest work? Sure. I'm, I write at sonar21.com. S-O-N-A-R-21.com. Great stuff. I uh, highly recommend Larry's content. You can also catch him on YouTube on Gonzalo Lira's channel and also occasionally the Duran, which are both fantastic geopolitical channels that will elevate your geopolitical IQ. And to my audience, thank you again for tuning in. And with that, El Nino has spoken.